thank you for joining us for the second installment of our podcast series, The Idea of Greece. This seven-part podcast is produced by the Hellenic Heritage Foundation's History Committee. We're a small but mighty group who love history, and through this offering, we hope to ignite the same passion in all of you. I'm your host, Georgia Balogianis. This podcast series is also under the auspices of the Greece 2021 Committee, which is spearheading the global commemoration of the 200th anniversary of the Greek Revolution. We're so pleased to have partnered with Agape Greek Radio, our sponsor for this podcast. Today's episode is called Not One War. I'm joined once again by Professor Sakis Gekas. Sakis is the Hellenic Heritage Foundation Chair in Modern Greek History at York University in Toronto. Hello, Sakis. Welcome back for round two. Hello, Georgia. Hello to all our listeners. It's good to have you here. In the first episode, we looked at the conditions under which Greeks lived in the Ottoman Empire, and we also got some insight into the daily life of Greeks uh, under the Ottomans. We also looked at various groups who eventually went on to play a major role in the revolution. But today, we're going to look at what motivated these groups to get involved in what eventually became an eight-year war. Did you know, for example, that uh, the Greek Revolution started in what is today Romania? No, I have absolutely no idea. Well, we mentioned in the previous episode that uh, Moldavia and Valachia are territories run as autonomous principalities by the Fanariots. These are areas on the border with Russia. And this is where Alexander Ypsilantis, the leader of the Filiketeria, has uh, crossed into uh, Moldavia and with a few hundreds of soldiers and he's amassing a few more to start uh, what was uh, one part of uh, a larger uprising that included an uprising in the Peloponnese as well. So that's where it all uh, starts with the uh, move of Alexander Ypsilanti and his um, uh, soldiers into uh, into Moldavia and declaring, uh, let's say, the uprising. On February 24th, 1821, Alexandros Ypsilantis issued his proclamation of insurrection in the Danubian principalities. Fight for faith and motherland. The time has come, Greek men. Long ago, the people of Europe, fighting for their own rights and liberties, invited us to imitate them. Those men, although partially free, tried with all their strength to increase their freedom and through their action, their prosperity. Our brothers and friends are everywhere ready. The Serbs, the Suliots, and all of Ipiros bearing arms await us. Let us enthusiastically unite with them. The motherland is calling us. Europe, fixing its eyes upon us, wonders at our inertia. Let all the mountains of Greece resound. Therefore, with the echo of our battle cries and the valleys resound with the clang of our weapons, Europe will admire our valor. Our tyrants, trembling and pale, will flee before us. So let's look at the timeline a little bit here. So the war starts in Romania, and then in March, it follows in the Peloponnese. Were these uprisings successful? The one in uh, the principalities was not. Uh, It was crushed by June uh, 1821. But by that time, it has provided some diversion uh, that allowed the revolutionaries in the Peloponnese to uh, succeed. The problem with the Danubian Principalities uprising is that uh, it never got local support. 
It never got the Serbian support it was hoping to do. Uh, and it never got especially Russian uh, support, the uh, support of the Russian Tsar and his thousands of soldiers that Alexander Ypsilantis and others in the Filikieteria thought that the Tsar would find an opportunity to attack uh, the Ottoman Empire. What it did, though, it was to provide a necessary time and diversion for the success in the Peloponnese, uh, for the uprising of the Peloponnese to succeed, which had a much more higher uh, ratio of Christians to Muslims. It was, it was uh, devoid of the strong Ottoman forces that are fighting uh, Ali Pasha, as we mentioned in the previous episode, in Yanina. Uh, so that is one of the reasons why it succeeded. There's a name that comes up in my readings a lot, Rigas Fereos. Who was he? Well, Rigas Fereos is an extraordinary man. Uh, by the time he is uh, 20, he, he was born in uh, Feres, in uh, Valestino, near, in central Greece, near Volos. And by the age of 20, he's, he's committing a crime. He sort of killed an Ottoman official and he has to, he becomes an outlaw. So he runs uh, to the mountains. And, but then he goes to Ayoros, the monastic community. That, that's here where he starts his training. And he ends up in uh, Bucharest, uh, first in, in Constantinople and then in Bucharest, serving under the Fanariots, uh, under Alexander Ypsilanti and um, other hospodars, other local uh, uh, rulers of the Moldavian uh, Valachian principalities. What he's extraordinary about is that he's uh, very learned in the uh, teachings, let's say, of the French Revolution. And he then goes on to Vienna, he publishes uh, his uh, Declaration of the Rights of Man, uh, which is which follows the French Revolution uh, documents, and he's uh, writing uh, revolutionary uh, texts that inspired uh, down the road uh, many uh, of the Greek revolutionaries. Revolutionaries. He was killed by the Ottomans. Uh, he was first arrested uh, in Vienna uh, under the suspicion of uh, inciting a uh, revolutionary movements in the Habsburg Empire, and then he was handed over to the Ottomans that killed him in uh, 1798 in uh, Belgrade. We now welcome Dr. Thomas W. Gallant, the holder of the Nicholas Family Endowed Chair of Modern Greek History and Distinguished Professor of History and Archaeology at the University of California, San Diego. Thank you for being here, Dr. Gallant. Oh, it's my pleasure, Georgia, and thank you for inviting me. If I could make a comment about what you were just talking about, another way of thinking about Rigas, is in many ways, he stands to the Greek Revolution what Thomas Jefferson was to the American Revolution. He was one of the, one of the intellectual leaders. As Jefferson did, he borrowed from, from history, from previous works. So Rigas was, again, he's, he's akin to Thomas Jefferson in terms of his impact. Well before the revolution actually breaks out. So it's in that intervening period where his influence is really felt. So Rigas really is a central figure. Tell me a little bit about Rigas Fereo's writings. Which ones would have inspired the Greeks? Uh, well, what he did was, along with like-minded intellectuals, is they first they translated some of the key documents from the West. So the French Revolutionary Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen was translated, as were some other Western documents. But what he did that was, was most important was that he not only took those documents and translated them, but he took them and interpreted them, and he reframed them for a Greek, a, what shall we say is Eastern Mediterranean context. And he pens, most importantly, a draft, a constitution that could be the model for the new state. And what's important about that new state is it was not to be based 
on any ethnicity, or more importantly, for those period, that period, religion. It was to be a multi-ethnic, multi-denominational, liberal republic, and it had mass enfranchisement, not for women, but his constitution did have a constitutional clause which mandated female education. This is one of the first that ever did that. So he actually provided a model for a constitution. And he also provided a map that was drawn up to give the geography of this new state. And it was to include Asia Minor, Eugene Islands, as well as Constantinople, which would be the capital of this new republic. And so what he saw then was a large part of the Ottoman Empire seceding and becoming its own state. Another way of looking at it was, it was to some way dispossess the sultan and to move the empire, as it were, to the east with this new republic in that previous space. So we know that this new republic never came to be the way the Esferreros had envisioned it. Could you describe some of the, I guess, reasons behind that? Was it more that it was ideological rather than realistic for something like that to happen? What happens in the intervening period are developments within the Ottoman Empire, the European part of the empire, as well as developments in Western Europe. The, the Napoleonic Wars, the transition of the French Revolution by Napoleon into something quite different. Then with the settlement of Europe after the Napoleon is defeated, it creates a whole new scene with great power involvement, their firm commitment to maintaining the balance of power, the concert of Europe, and to suppress liberal revolutions to maintain the status quo ante before the French Revolution. So it's a very different environment. And most importantly, in our context, what there was was a hardening of denominational lines between the periods. So for example, in the early 1800s, in the Peloponnesus, there was actually discussed and almost taken to the point of put into operation a plan for the Peloponnesus to secede. And it would become a multi-denominational entity. They were thinking of a principality. And this was a venture that was driven by both the Muslim Peloponnesian elite and the Greek Orthodox elite. So what they saw was a sort of either a principality attached to the Ottoman Empire or an independent entity on its own that would be ruled by this aristocracy that was multi-denominational. Now that never came to fruition. So that was in the early 1800s. And then what we see is this hardening of religious lines. And so Rigas's grand vision for this very liberal, multi-denominational republic falters as nationalism starts to take hold, as does in, a, in combination with the hardening of religious lines. The Greek War of Independence is going to have multiple strands going through it. One is religious, one is ideological. And so Rigas's dream is dashed on the rocks of nationalism. Let's listen to Riga's uh, revolutionary songs, uh, Thurios. Until when are we, O oh brave young men, going to live in constraint, lonely like lions on the ridges of the mountains? Better have an hour of free life and freedom than 40 years of slavery in prison. Shall we dwell in caves just looking out at the branches, leaving from the world into the bitter slavery? Better live one hour of freedom and free life been 40 years in slavery in prison. We lose our brothers, homeland and parents, our friends, children, and all of our kin. Better live in one hour of freedom and free life than 40 years of slavery in prison.
Just like the French Revolution inspired the Greeks to fight for an independent country, did the Greeks inspire other countries to start their own battles for freedom? That's a very, very interesting, intriguing question. First off, let's be clear about one thing. The French Revolution influenced Greek intellectuals. Most of those, the everyday people who joined the revolution knew nothing about the French Revolution, probably didn't even know where France was. They thought, you know, remember, everybody who was Western was called a French, it's called a Franc. The French Revolution only influenced those at the top. And of course, some of those ideas about freedom, liberty, but what did that really mean to a poor peasant working the farm to feed his family, to pay the rent to his landlord? What did that mean? While the French revolutionary ideas resonated in terms of the ideology that underpins the revolution, the everyday people who joined, particularly in the Peloponnesus, did for two reasons. One was religion. We see this. The people who joined the revolution, you know, they're taking to the, the protest, taking the streets. There's marches, there's people mobilizing. And what are these guys who are putting down their pitchforks or actually carrying their pitchforks to join the revolution because they don't have armaments? What's motivating them? What do they say? Well, they're cheering, they're chanting things like, this is a war for God. This is, we have these over again, that this is a religious conflict. And so what resonates for them then is religion. Next, they were an oppressed group, particularly in the years leading up to the revolution. Remember, right, for the years from 1815 to 1819, one of the great depressions in European history, there was hunger in the Greek world. People were starving. What motivated people was hungry bellies and the chance to get land. So the French Revolution has an impact, but it's been overstated. We have to combine it with other factors, most importantly, religion. Now, the Greek Revolution takes place in the midst of revolutions going on around the world. That's why this era is called the Age of Revolutions. At the same time, Greeks rebelling, you've got rebellions in Spain, brewing in Italy, Poland, Latin America, the Indian subcontinent, China, Japan. And what we're finding is when we look at them as a whole, what we see is there's a lot of cross currents and influence, ideas crossing from one place to the other. What made the Greek insurrection different from all of these others is the religious dimension. Greece is different because it is pitting Christians against Muslims. It has that religious dimension that these other ones don't. And that's what makes the Greek revolution different from all the others. And so it in itself is not influential so much as it is part of this Congress of Revolutions. So the revolution failed in the Moldavian and Valachian principalities, but it did succeed in March uh, 1821 in the Peloponnese. Tom, what do you think was that? Thanks, Akis. That's a great question. There are a number of reasons why the Peloponnesus was much was a successful, eventually successful theater of, of revolution. The first is the Orthodox population was a greater percentage compared to the Muslim population in the Peloponnesus. In fact, it was one of the most skewed. It was about 85 to 90% Christian as opposed to Muslim. And that's important because whenever an insurrection takes place, an uprising against the state or against the aristocracy, whoever, people have to make a decision. Do they join and risk everything? In this case, if the insurrection failed, anyone who took up arms would, was obviously declared a traitor. If they're captured, they would be executed. Their family, their extended family, everyone they're related to would be enslaved and they're properly confiscated. So 
you're making an existential decision if you took up arms. Then you had those folks who basically wanted to wait and see what happened and would join if the insurrection proved successful. And this is very important because there seems to be an assumption that when the insurrection takes place, that everybody joined all across the Greek world. That's not the case. Areas joined at different times. So the greater percentage of people made it easier for the insurrection to take place. So the greatest percentage of, of Christians taking their place. Second, remember that, that Ali Pasha Tepetalendi in, in Yanya, his civil war against Mahmoud II was still raging with the verdict unknown. And so the Ottoman Empire within Europe basically mobilized resources, not so much against either the Northern Front or certainly the South, but against Ali Pasha. From the perspective of Constantinople, basically the Moria, the Peloponnesus, was a backwater. It was not important. It was peripheral. It was just a, you know, an outlier for the empire. Initially, Constantinople did not pay much attention to the Peloponnesus. Next, one of the groups that joined the war very early were the seamen, the fleet. Greek merchant ships and their owners joined the insurrection very early. And that did two things. It gave Greece control or at least access to the Aegean, which could prevent reinforcements coming from the Levant to the Balkans. But most importantly, it gave the Peloponnesus a supply lifeline to the West. You cannot have an insurrection without armaments, guns, gunpowder, other munitions. But the fleet gave the, the incipient rebels access to supplies. And eventually, very quickly, manpower, people coming from the West, gunpowder, armaments. If you look at, for example, go around, whenever you go around Greece, or go to the historical museum, and you see the cannons that were used during the war, I guarantee you that 80% of them, when you look at where they were made, they're English. They're basically reused war materials from the Napoleonic Wars. Tom, may I ask you about the Ottoman response to the outbreak of the war? The initial reaction in the port was, why are the Greeks revolting? They're the most favored of peoples. They occupied, as you talked about in the previous podcast, the upper echelon of, of the Orthodox community was very wealthy, was very powerful within the Ottoman Empire. And so that's why when the revolt takes place, the Ottomans are perplexed. So the Ottoman response, what's going on? And you know who they blamed? They blamed Russia. The Ottoman response initially was the hidden hand of Russia is behind this. And so that starts to escalate tensions with Russia because the Ottoman, remember, Ypsilantis comes from Russia. He invades from Russia. He's a Russian military officer who was very high up. So they could not believe that Russia was not behind the insurrection. So that was their initial response. They didn't see the Peloponnese as being particularly important because they, they saw everything as emanating from the north. So that was their initial response. Things only start to change with the defeat of Ali Pasha, because that meant that all of the troops that had been mobilized to fight him could now be turned to two areas, solidifying the front, putting out all the little brush fires of insurrections popping up, and focus on the south, which had been the most successful. Within the first year, the revolution was able to basically control the entire countryside and, and and trap, besiege the Ottoman garrisons, which were crucial because that's where more supplies were. 
So Georgia, as I mentioned, the Greeks didn't fight this war alone. It was to 1825 when other great powers got involved in support of the Greeks. So what was their motivation in getting involved? Was it goodwill or was there something in it for them? It was goodwill on, in the sense that there was a lot of support for uh, the Greek cause by 1825. Uh, there were a lot of Philippines who were pushing their governments to intervene, especially in Britain. But there was also a geopolitical consideration. The competition that begins to emerge with Russia. And in 1826, uh, the first meeting took place between the British uh, foreign uh, minister and the Russian foreign minister in St. Petersburg and the first protocol of intervention to stop the war in Greece was signed. Mr. Longhi falls in April 1826, and that creates also an international surge of support and sympathy for the Greek cause. So the protocol of St. Petersburg between Britain and Russia comes at this particularly timely uh, moment. And this is the first time that they call for an end of hostilities, and the creation of an autonomous Greek state that will still be subject to tax, to taxation, to the Sultan, but we run uh, autonomously as well. When the Sultan refused to accept these terms, the next uh, meeting between the foreign powers, in which now France uh, was a part, agreed to send a large fleet in the Mediterranean and uh, docked off the coast of uh, Navarino, off the western coast of the Peloponnese. So in October 1827 uh, is when the Battle of Navarino took place, and it ended up with a huge uh, defeat of uh, the Ottoman forces, the Arab Ottoman forces, including the, uh, the fleet of the Egyptian army. And uh, it was really the deciding battle of the war. So it wasn't the heroism of the Greeks that defeated the Ottomans. It was the foreign powers that led them to victory? I think it was not just the heroism of the Greek forces and the Greek revolutionaries. And I don't think Greeks who took up arms against the Ottoman Empire had any doubt from the beginning that it was just by the heroism that they would manage to succeed to become independent. I think there's evidence that uh, they knew this from the start, and that's why they tried to bring in a foreign power, first Russia, then Britain, Uh, and then very, very, it's, it went great for them that all Britain's, French and Russian forces managed to defeat uh, the Ottoman forces and still the Sultan did not capitulate. So that increased their uh, chances of, and the Greek chances of uh, succeeding um, to become independent. I feel like everyone is questioning their Greek school education right about now, me included. We'll no doubt be unraveling further myths about the Greek revolution in future podcasts. In our next installment of our podcast series, The Idea of Greece, we'll look deeper into the various battles of those eight years, and we will talk about how brutal the war actually was. We'll discover that people who didn't fight met a violent end. The saga continues, wouldn't you say, Sakis? It certainly does. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. This podcast was produced by the Hellenic Heritage Foundation. Special thanks to our team behind the scenes for helping make this happen. Our researchers, Natasha Burliauscu, Angelo Lascaris, and Tina Pulimeno-Tatsanis. Our editor, Stampa Pulkis, and our resident historian, York University's Professor Sakis Gekas, and our original music composed by Dimitris Petsalakis. 
The voice of Rigas Pereos and Alexander Stilantis was performed by George Scandalis. Special thanks to our guest, historian Professor Tom Gallant. Our executive producer is Sandra Giones. To our sponsor, Agape Greek Radio, thank you for your support. Thanks to the Greece 2021 Committee and all who fought in the Greek Revolution for inspiring us. I'm Georgia Balogianis. The idea of Greece returns in two weeks with our next installment, The Brutality of War. This podcast can be found on Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Music